Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning, and we give you thanks above all else to stand here, to stand on holy ground, and to praise you, to draw near to you, to worship you, and to receive, O oh Lord. Give us a posture of receiving, to receive your truth, that those of us in this room who may not know you would hear your voice calling our name, that we may profess a true faith in you, Lord. And for those of us that do know you, that we would grow deeper. May the words that come from my mouth be of you, O Lord, and not of anything else, so that we only hear and see you, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Be seated. I don't know if I popped up too, too quickly, but either way, it was fun just to watch everybody. So, good job. So, we are... Um, we are in the middle of a sermon series that's going to walk us through the book of Acts. Today, today I am going to do something a little bit different and, and kind of walk through a little bit line by line through Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. And so right out of the gate, I just want to forewarn you that that's what's going to happen. Uh, and that if you would use the Bibles in the back of the pew, or if you have your Acts journals, use those, have them, because we're just going to kind of walk through what's going on here today. Before I jump in on that, let's get ourselves oriented and, and kind of thinking on the same lines here. My question for you to kind of open us up. How many of you, when you are asked to pray, or before you, maybe you're at home and you start praying yourself, how many of you first take a deep breath? Raise your hand. Before you pray, you take a deep breath in and get yourself situated. Those of you who don't have your hands up, I'm going to call you out just a little bit because I've seen a lot of us in our ministry team meetings and here at church, you may not even realize it, but when we ask for everyone to start to pray, several things kind of happen. First, you've got the people who kind of sigh and they lean back and they get themselves all comfy in the pew. You have the people who kind of maybe take a little bit of an inhale and they take their glasses off and set them on the table and they, they rub their eyes and they do one of these numbers or there's the folks that just kind of Jack Watson it and they just kind of look up in the sky <laughs> as they're like that. But either way, there's some movement as we get ready to take a prayer. And I would wager a lot of you, whether you realize it or not, there's this moment where you kind of take a breath. I know that I do that. I know that when I sit down and get ready to start to pray or read the Bible or anything like that, I have this moment where I take a nice deep inhale of breath, and I would recommend it because I'm sure scientifically, where's my doctors? I'm sure scientifically things are happening, right? When I take in oxygen like that, like something's happening to my brain. Is that true? All my doctors in here? Yeah. But spiritually, I think something's happening as well too because we're inhaling the Holy Spirit. We're putting ourselves in a posture of receiving, of being still, of saying to God, I, I am here and I am listening. And it's all in that taking of a breath. Today, we're going to discuss taking a breath because they're going to stumble upon a phrase that I've read over several times and never really stopped to really think about it until I took a breath, right? And I looked at it and there's a phrase in our, in our journeys today that really means one of two things. It could mean to cool down, or it could mean to revive by a recovery of breath, to breathe easily again. So I want you to hold on to that image, that experience of taking a deep breath before the Lord as we come before Him and hear His Word today. 
where are we at in the book of Acts? So we're still in chapter 3. So if you're thinking, okay, what's going on? We're taking our time as we go through this. And here in chapter 3, last week, we talked about there was a healing. And it was very, very interesting that this healing is kind of the first action of the church, and it mirrors the first ministry actions of Jesus as recorded in the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus starting his ministry with some sort of healing. John takes a minute. John goes to a wedding first because maybe he likes to party. I don't know. He goes to a wedding first and you have the water to wine miracle, but eventually we get to uh, a healing. We get to a healing of sorts from him. But we talked about how significant that was for us as our church in present day is to kind of watch the, the actions of this early church and to see what's important. And the healing of the lame, the crippled beggar says to us that the church needs to hold up healing the lost, the poor, the downtrodden, the, the folks that are in need, needs to hold that up as a value. We need to be about healing folks, spiritual healing, physical healing, whatever it is, giving them hope and giving them restoration. And then we talked about how the, the, that Peter and John, when they saw this beggar, they, they truly saw him, and they were on their way to worship, and something stopped them, and Peter fixed his gaze upon the beggar. And I said, the other lesson that we get from that is that we as a church need to truly see people, not to go about our busy everyday lives and just kind of just keep on keeping on with what we're doing, but to have those kingdom eyes, those beatitude eyes that truly see people and seek those opportunities to share Christ with them to help them out. And at the last, that it's all done through the power of Jesus the Christ from Nazareth, that none of this is done on our own. This is all a part of us having received the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit dwells richly in us and continues to empower us and our witness, okay? So that goes all through chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Then we get into today's text, and we see another message from Peter. Peter gives another sermon to his Israel brother and sisters because something has, has triggered that. And the, what it is is that they, they are misplacing their astonishment and their wonder, and, and he seizes the moment to begin to teach them to again. Now, we're within, you know, walking distance of when he did his first sermon and now, and now the next, at least for us in our text. And so as we hold these two sermons up, you'll remember in Acts 2, Peter gave a sermon, a message to the Israel brothers and sisters. And why was that? Well, a supernatural thing had occurred then too, just like this healing of the beggar. Only in Acts 2, it was Pentecost Sunday. And all the people gathered around, and they saw the disciples speaking in tongues, speaking in languages, and they could understand it. Some people were truly amazed and astonished and filled with awe, the, the type of fear and reverence that you need to have. And others looked at them and said, they're drunk. It's obviously that, that they, they've been drinking too much good wine, and they're acting silly. And Peter seized that opportunity once again to correct them, to correct his brothers and sisters in Israel, his Jewish brothers and sisters. And the primary focus of the Acts 2 message really is the culmination of salvation. He preaches to them, and he gives them the opportunity to repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and it's the focus of, like, the time has come. 
The Holy Spirit has been sent just as it has been foretold. Now open your eyes, repent, be baptized, receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and be saved, be counted amongst the people in this new covenant. That was the focus for Acts chapter 2. And thousands of people were cut to the heart and they, they professed a faith in Jesus. They repented. They, they turned. They changed their mind. Now we get into Acts 3, and we, we turn the notch up just a little. Just a little. And it's not so much the culmination of salvation. Now what Peter is going to do in convicting and teaching, again, his brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith. Don't, don't, don't miss that. They're all, all in it together. That's significant. I'll explain in a minute. He says to them now in this message, the focus is more on experiencing continuously what it means to be saved. Do you see the difference? One message is just the culmination of salvation. You are in the family, period, done. This message in chapter 3 is more about the experience of what it means to be saved. What are they going to experience having repented. Does that make sense? Nod your head yes and no. We're good? Okay, good. That's, so that's where we're at. We got these two messages here, these two messages to the Jewish audience, one about the culmination, the end game of salvation, the other about the ongoing experience of what it means to have the presence of the Lord and what it means to experience what he uses the phrase, times of refreshing, Spoil alert, that's that whole take a breath thing. Peter wants them to realize not just salvation, but the opportunity to experience the kingdom they've been waiting for for centuries right now, continuously, just as this healed, crippled man is experiencing. Make no mistake about it. It is not a mistake that Acts chapter 3 opens up with a healing of a crippled from birth beggar. They want us to see, the Lord wants us to see the metaphor of this crippled man. Now, I would say there was truly a healed crippled man who, who, who received healing. But the grand narrative that comes with that is that that crippled man is Israel. That crippled man is a metaphor for Israel at that present time, who are crippled, who are dependent on another country, who are scattered, who are not the, the they are not the person, the, the people that God had created them to be. And you say, well, this, this healed, this, this uh, crippled man, it says in the text that he was, he was lame since birth. I would say Israel was lame since birth as well. When you go back to Father Abraham, the father of the Israel nation, God gave Abraham a promise and said, from Sarah, you will have this child, and this is what's going to send us into this trajectory of this nation that will have descendants numerous as the stars. But what does Abraham do? Does Abraham faithfully wait for Sarah to have a baby? He does not. He then lays with a servant woman to try to expedite this process, I don't know if that's the right word, but expedite this process. There you go. Expedite this process. And we get Ishmael. And that's a hot mess because Ishmael is the reason why we have a whole other religion out there, the Muslim faith, that 
ties their history to Ishmael. The, the animosity between all of that, all because Abraham was like, well, let's get this going. Israel's crippled from birth. It's even interesting that Israel is the name given to Jacob, which I believe is Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who wrestled with God. And after wrestling with God, God cripples his hip because he persevered with him all night. Israel means one who contends with God. So crippled from birth, here they are in, Peter, in Peter's time, in this time of Acts, the Israel nation is just a shadow of what it should be. It is crippled. It is dependent. And here we get this healing of that, of that man who is now able to jump and praise and praise the Lord because the time has come to experience the Lord's messianic kingdom here on earth. The messianic kingdom where one day we will be without chains, where we'll be able to walk in the commandments of the Lord freely, where there's no illness, where there's no tears, all the things, right? You get to experience that now in part here. So it's not an accident that that healing of the lame man is happening here. It's to open our eyes that this is the time, and it's to open the Jewish people's eyes, hey, this is the time to, for you to repent and hear about the good news of Jesus Christ, the one in whom you crucified, the one in whom God sent. But through him, you get to experience this kingdom you have been waiting for for centuries. It's a big, big deal, right? So, what I want to do is I want us to walk through this message because we're going to pick out some really cool parts. At least they were cool to me. You may not think so. I'm, you know, I, I love studying this kind of stuff. You may be thinking, okay, and <laughs> tell us a fun story. But no, but I'm going to walk through this with you here because I think it's, it's so profound what God is doing through these apostles to, to come after Jerusalem first. Remember, they're supposed to go to Jerusalem first as witnesses. The time is now for, for them. Let's see how they do it. So we're going to take a breath, everybody. Everyone take a deep breath. And we're going to do that maybe several times where we'll just pause and take a breath and just have that moment of refreshing, that reviving breath that reminds us of the kingdom that awaits us here in the future. Thank you, Susan, for singing the kingdom song. She had no idea. So thank you for that. She's downstairs rehearsing. We'll thank her later. It's good. All right, let's jump in, everybody. We're going to read through Acts chapter 3, 11 through 26. I'm going to go a little bit line by line and teach as I go. So this is um, that third or that second message from Peter, and this is after the healing of the beggar, and now they're at Solomon's portico. Everyone ready? Let me see excited faces. Let me see those smiles. Look at those smiles. Okay, here we go. Verse 11. So now... Actually, let me go back to verse 10. They were back in the temple, and everyone recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, verse 11. While he, the, the now healed uh, beggar person, man, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people were utterly astounded and ran together to them in the portico, portico called Solomon's. Circle the word clung. Circle the word clung. 
What is happening here is that this healed man has now been jumping around, praising the Lord, and everything's been great. And then we get to verse 11. As people get to notice, he may be getting a little self-conscious by all of those things, but it's so significant because this lame, crippled beggar who could not walk and now is able to jump and walk and dance around, at verse 11, we see him return to a clung state. And he clings to Peter and John. That word cling right there means to hold fast. In the Greek, it could mean to seize or to arrest or to hold fast as in be almost devoted to the word. What this young man is doing here, or old man, I don't know how old he is, but what he's doing here is clinging and holding on to the only tangible thing that represents what he just experienced. And Peter is going to explain to everybody what it is that he experienced. He experienced the faith of Jesus Christ, and now all he can do is hold on to the closest thing that he has right there. When was the last time you all held fast to the Word of God? Think about it. When was the last time you held fast just like that image of that healed beggar. Hold fast to the word of God in the times where you needed to anchor yourself and, and has the only thing that was going to get you through. This is what that, that healed beggar is feeling. And so as he's clinging to him, Peter goes on and he teaches and says, when he saw that the people were utterly astounded, he addressed them and said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, and why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we have made him walk? Circle the word wonder. When I read this, I got nervous because the past couple of weeks I've been talking about how important it is for the church to have that sense of awe and that sense of wonder, that sense of fear and reverence for the Lord. And so I was worried that this was going to be the same Greek word and was going to fly in my face here a little bit. That, that Peter is now going to scold them for having fear and reverence in these signs. But this word is a different, <laughs> God love the Greek language, it's a different word altogether. It means surprised. So Peter looks at his Jewish brothers, sisters here. He says, why, fam, are you surprised at this sign? Why are you surprised that this man is jumping around, dancing around, and praising the Lord? Why are you looking at us with those wonder in your eyes, thinking that we had anything to do with it? You are missing it again. What's impacted in this, in this, in this statement here is if you go and remember back to when Jesus was performing signs and miracles, crowds began to gather, and people began in troves, bringing in folks for him to heal. And eventually, Jesus is like, whoa, you're getting too swept up in the magic of all of this and not in the power in which this is happening. You're not being in reverent awe to the person who is doing these signs. You're being swept up in the, in the, the majesticness of the whole thing. So Peter's kind of saying the same thing. Then don't be surprised that this healing has happened. This should be no news. This should be, this should be old news to you. And then he goes a little bit further into explaining why it should be old news. Verse 13, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. 
He says to him, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at this. And let me tell you why. And goes through all the Old Testament titles of God and then even says the God of our fathers. He says to them, listen, the true God, the true God who chose you as a people, the true God who, who got you out of Egypt, the true God who promised you a promised land, who promised you that you will be his people, who promised that he would be your God, and who also promised that he would send his Messiah and establish a kingdom here that would restore Israel to its prominent place. This same God is the one in whom this healing has occurred. Moreover, this same God is the one who sent his servant Jesus, the true Messiah, and whom you killed. He recounts all the things that they did again towards the Messiah. He says, the one that you killed, the one that you handed over, the one in whom you chose a murderer Barabbas over the author of life. You chose all of this and killed that Messiah who came from the God of our fathers. It's a real convicting statement there for them. It's not a glamorous statement. It's not a political statement. In fact, he could possibly get in a lot of trouble for saying what he's saying in the temple to these people, but he doesn't shy from it. He's got their attention. The God of our fathers is the one in whom this happens. Don't be surprised. Don't make the same mistake in misplacing your wonder in the actual magicness of, of miracles happening, but have that true sense of awe and fear and reverence and the power in which this was done. The power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth in which this man was healed. And that's what he goes on to say. He says to them that his name... Jesus, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. He is saying that look to this healing and make the connection that you can experience the kingdom you've been waiting for right now if only you knew where this power came from. You can experience the kingdom you've been waiting for right now if only you would know where the power this came from. Now, Peter goes on. He goes on. So he, he, he talks about, he talks about to, his, to his Israel brothers and sisters about all the bad things that they did in terms of killing Jesus. And then, and then he says this, this line, which I had to get around because I wasn't quite sure and I don't know if I really liked it, he says, verse 17, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. You acted in ignorance, as also you did your rulers. Meaning that their killing of the Messiah, now Peter says, but I get it, you didn't know what you're doing. Now, anyone else confused with that statement? Because all along, We've been talking about this has been foretold in the prophets. The information has been in front of them all along. They have just been too hard-hearted to see. How is this ignorance? How is this that we can let them off the hook? 
Sometimes people say ignorance is bliss, and you're like, well, I'll, I'll excuse it once, you know. And maybe this is that. Maybe Peter's saying, we'll excuse the fact that you killed the Messiah just this one time. I mean, it just sounds weird, right? But maybe they were so far off. Maybe they were so far lost and scattered that their prophecies didn't just didn't hold any weight. They weren't consulting them. And so when this, this person who seems like he's from God and seems like he's doing crazy awesome things, but I don't know if his, I, I wouldn't go as far to call him Messiah, maybe a prophet, maybe. And then when he starts doing things and causing a ruckus, and all of a sudden the crowd turns to let's crucify him, everyone's like, oh, okay, sure, yeah, let's, let's off him off. Let's get him out. Maybe it's a Holy Spirit thing. Maybe they were so incapable of knowing the truth because that's how powerful the Holy Spirit is. I mean, Matthew 28, when Jesus is there with his disciples on the mountaintop and giving them the Great Commission, what does it say? There they came, and yet some doubted. They didn't have that Holy Spirit dwelling in them, convicting them of the truth. Maybe that's it. All I know is that this is a significant phrase, that they acted in ignorance. Because Jesus Christ himself from the cross when he was dying said what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Well, if it's coming from the big JC, I guess it's true. And we have to offer that forgiveness. Did you know, I didn't know this, that that is anchored in Old Testament theology? If you go to the book of Leviticus chapter 4 and 5, it talks about unintentional sin, where people sin against the commandments of the Lord and don't realize that they did it. There's a whole section in there of what you're supposed to do when someone has unintentional sin. It says when a person sins unintentionally and they either realize themselves what they've done or the sin has been made known public, then there is a thing that they have to do. They have to go and they have to sacrifice some sort of animal. They got to spill blood everywhere. And then the priest has to make an atonement for them. And every time that they talk about this in Leviticus 4 and 5, it says, and their sins were forgiven. So when Peter says, you acted in ignorance and follows it up with, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ, his Messiah would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ, his Messiah would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Peter is following the sequence of events in Leviticus with these Israel brothers and sisters. He is saying, your sins have been made known. You killed Jesus. But God, through Christ, fulfilled the sacrifice for that sin. Forgiveness is on the table for you now. You can truly see and understand this messianic kingdom that is here, that has is, that is made this healed, lame beggar walk and run. You can experience now if only you would what? Repent and turn. Isn't that, that to me was just amazing. He's holding up everything to them and saying, my friends, the time is now. If he had a neon sign, it would be blinking and saying, the time is now for you to repent and turn back so that you can fully 
understand. And he actually, he, he explains it out. The next part here in verse 19, repent therefore, I've added the words so that, because how this is structured in the Greek is that in order for sins being blotted out and the times of refreshing and the times of restoration to happen, repentance has to happen first. It's dependent on them repenting. For, for, I mean, for them in their lives. And so he says, repent, turn back so that, what? Your sins would be blotted out. And this is a review for all of us. What does it mean for your sins to be blotted out? It's so that your sins would be removed forever. How are their sins removed forever? Because Jesus is both the sacrificial lamb and the scapegoat who paid the penalty for their sins and removed them forever and ever, amen, once and for all. So he's saying, that's still on the table for you. Your unintentional sin has been sacrificed for, so I need you to turn from that and realize this new covenant that is established in this Christ Jesus, the Messiah. And if you do that, those sins are taken away, blotted out forever. The next thing he says, repent and turn back so that you would actually have, the next slide there, Repent and turn back so that you would have times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And this is what it means to take a breath. Times of refreshing, that word refreshing means either to cool down, actually to be saved from the wrath and hot indignation of the Lord, or to be revived and taking a breath. He says repent so that you can have these times of refreshing continuously. The word times here is kairos time, which means seasons. Not necessarily chronological time, but this is the season for continued times of refreshing, for them to continue to get glimpses of the messianic kingdom that they have been waiting on forever and ever. How do we show glimpses of the messianic kingdom. How do we show glimpses that God is good and God is faithful? We show them out by loving others the way he has loved us, by going after the sick and the poor and providing healing and help. There's times in my personal life where I've had these times of refreshing where God has been so good that I know that he has blessed me because there is no way that I could ever have manufactured this in my life. One in particular personal time is when I was standing at the front of the church on my wedding day and there was two doors that didn't have windows and they opened up and there I see my suitable helper that God has given me, my wife, coming down in her wedding dress. That was a time of refreshing that made me take a breath. When the birth of my three children to know that God can work all this stuff together and bless me with this life that's a time of refreshing. When Carrie had two miscarriages and we had to walk through that darkness and I realized as she said that I feel God weeping with me and walking with me, time of refreshing. I've had it with you all as well. Times of refreshing where God has been faithful and good, where I've, where I've had glimpses of the messianic kingdom that is to come, but I've experienced it now. I've experienced at the bedside, Pat Payne of your dad, Jim Stevenson. On the day before he died and in his room, he's citing a psalm and we're talking and I could feel the gates of heaven behind me as it's waiting a well, faithful servant to come home. With Dr. Hall, where's Nancy? giving him communion the day before he passed away. 
couple days before and him reminding us that it's Jesus that chases after us. That's a time of refreshing. Ronnie Kiefer is an old-time member of our church when I first got here. Unfortunately, had bladder cancer, had to have things removed, and got bad news in the hospital. And I went there, and I got, brought her communion. And she's saying to me, as I'm getting ready to, to do communion, she says, I'm ready. I want to see Jesus. I have lived a good life. And I thought, you know, oh, that's nice. But then I opened up the communion elements. And when she saw with her eyes the wafer and the little cup, and heard the crack of the wafer when I said, the body of Christ broken for you. She took a breath and went and gasped. Times of refreshing. Peter wants this for his Jewish brothers and sisters. He, his, I, I have to believe his heart is breaking. I know we gotta go. His, his heart is breaking for them. He wants them to see this, the, that Everything that you've been waiting for, my brethren and sister, and it's, it's now, it's here. Open your eyes and see this lame man is walking, not because we're special, but because God, through his Holy Spirit that is coursing through us in the name of Jesus Christ, he's walking. And you can experience more and more of this as long as you repent so that you can have the presence of the Lord, the Holy Spirit in you, convicting you of these truths and giving you glimpses of these refreshing moments of the kingdom. But it doesn't end there, and I got to close it out. The last thing he says, repent and turn back so that he may send Christ at the time of restoration of all things. Time is mentioned twice, but it's two different words. The times of refreshing is a season thing. This is the season that this is happening. But the time of restora restoration is chronos time, where God has appointed and affixed a time when Jesus will come back. So that is there, and it's not for us to know. It's only for us to know that it's the season of refreshing witness. When the disciples said to Jesus before he ascended, are you now going to restore the kingdom? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, the chronos or the kairos. It's not time for you to know those. He has fixed it by his own authority. But what this season is, you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem first and in all of Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. There is a urgency in Peter because the season is now for them. Because at such a time, prophecies tell us God will harden the heart of Israel so that the fullness of the Gentiles can come in. And so there's an immediate urgency for him to bestow this upon them. It's, it's here. Look, he's walking and praising God. Hold fast to the word. Cling to it. Repent. And see that messianic kingdom that you've been waiting for. In part now and one day in full when that affixed time of restoration comes to be. What do we take from this as a church, my friends? That this is the season of refreshing witness. Take a breath. And remember and be convicted that the Holy Spirit is within you now and is empowering you not only to experience the kingdom yourself, but to be that for people so that they could catch a glimpse, repent, and come be a part of our movement until the time of restoration. Let's pray.
Gracious Lord Jesus, I thank you for your amazing blessings. I thank you for the patience of going line by line and really kind of pulling out some key moments here in this message that, that really should fuel us in our witness. To know that, that you're with us and you're empowering us. To know that you are sending us. To know that you're going before us and wor working on the hearts of people. So that when we show them glimpses of the kingdom, they have the eyes to see it and to repent and profess you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, give us that energy. Give us that breath. Just as Ezekiel said to the army, breathe in the four winds. And they became a mighty army for the Lord. Let us take a breath, dear God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.